Boy, don't you love how there's that noise going on in the background and then the peace rolls in uh, with what God brings. And um, <laughs> I got kind of a <laughs> unconventional thought that went through my mind uh, recently when I heard that. My daughter knows that I am a Bronco fan, and so she brought me a gift, and the gift was to send me to a Seahawk game last night. (laughs) And we were seated right up next to that 12 section. What is that? We get in there, and the game's getting going, and it is like this roar, roar, roar. And I'm looking around, and I'm hearing people mocking me, saying, hee-haw, hee-haw, and it's just kind of breaking loose and then the Broncos scored it's like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 32-3 I'm like singing the tune but I know it's preseason and I do remember the Super Bowl the snap when we played you guys yes I will try to stay humble after that victory right now I want to ask you guys to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. That's going to be our text. And uh, just by way of a reminder, in a couple of weeks, September 5th, we're going to have a service time change. This first service will continue to start at 9 o'clock, but our second service will start at 10.30, beginning September 5th. We're continuing a series this morning called How Sweet the Sound. And this is week three, week one, Amazing Grace. Week two, How Great Thou Art. If you didn't have a chance to watch those messages or if you weren't in this room, please uh, take the time to catch up with us. Those messages were awesome. Today, part three, we'll be covering the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The author of the, of the hymn was uh, Joseph Scriven. And this young man was born at that time, a young man uh, that had been born in Dublin, Ireland, September 10th, 1819, as a young adult, he graduated from Trinity College. He met a gal, got engaged, but tragically, the night before they got married, she died in an accidental drowning. He then, uh, in his grief, immigrated to Canada, and when he went to Canada, he, uh, he met a gal there, fell in love with Eliza Roche, and uh, got engaged, and tragically again, Days before uh, their wedding, she would die of pneumonia. I cannot imagine a young man seeking to to please God, to worship God, and to honor God with his life go through such a deep tragedy, but we've all experienced those type of things or seen those type of things. So he then, uh, he went on to work for the Brethren uh, Church. He spent the rest of his life uh, helping widows and the elderly in their community. He was known as a man who would uh, meet any need that went out there. Uh, He never refused help to those who were in need. He then learned of his mother's uh, illness in Ireland. And while she's in Ireland, and he couldn't travel there because he didn't have the resources to do so, he decided to pen a letter and enclose a poem. And the poem that he enclosed was entitled Pray Without Seizing because he wanted to encourage his mom to take it to the Lord in prayer. A friend noticed the, the, the poem that had been written when he had visited uh, Scriven himself, uh, who was ill, 
And when asked about it, he said, the Lord and I did this poem together. That poem, that same poem, was renamed, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That poem was then taken and written into a song. The composer was Charles C. Converse. And he then uh, took that poem and he published it abroad. And he had many, many uh, performances in orchestras and choirs. Uh, but the tune that is most remembered today for this composer was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We'll sing this song, this hymn, a little bit later in our service after, after we've looked into God's word. But I couldn't help but think about him and many others who go through defining moments of testing and trials. And it really becomes like a watershed moment that happens when our faith is collided with a storm. If you were to go to Colorado, you maybe will hike a trail on the Continental Divide. And when you look at a lot of these trailheads, there'll be a sign that looks something like this. It'll say it's a Continental Divide, which is a, a, a mountain range that travels all across the, the continent. But it goes all the way through Colorado, and you'll see on the lower part, there's an Atlantic and Pacific. And what that refers to is a watershed. Everything that lands on one side, all the moisture that lands, it begins to go down that one side of that mountain into tributaries and rivers. And it has a destination that it's going to go. And it's going to go to the Atlantic or to the Pacific. And that's very much how it is for us when our lives have storms that come rolling in, that pound on our lives and it tests our faith. And it's going to land one direction or the other. We're either going to be fortified in our faith or it's going to rattle our faith. And sadly, for a number of people and even for ourselves in a lot of situations, we run into these trials and these difficulties and we may, over a period of time, go, wait a minute, whatever happened with my faith? How did my faith get so far over here? And it's a testing of our faith, and these watershed moments can really define what we believe and where our faith lies. So our central point this morning is the testing of one's faith and love reveals where our loyalty and security lies, especially in the greatest of storms. Well, that's about what's uh, going to happen in the life of these disciples in the Gospel of John. And just to kind of do a little setup of where we're going to go with this passage of scripture. I just want us to understand that when we look at the Bible and when we read the Bible, we're reading the very words of God. That's why it's called the word of God. And the God and John is the author of the gospel of John and he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down the words of God. And what's really unique about what we're going to look at this morning is he's not only inspired by God to write down the words of God, he's literally penning the words of God as Jesus is speaking. And so we could take to heart that these are the words of God that were landing on the hearts and minds of these disciples that were to be passed on to be understood by us as followers of Jesus Christ as well. So the purpose of the, of the gospel of John is found in uh, chapter 20, verse uh, 31, that reads, that you <clears throat> may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John was written. If you know of someone or you are someone who is trying to discover whether or not you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John is where you want to be. He goes on to say, or he said earlier in the Gospel, in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to you all 
who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He goes on to say in chapter 3 what it means to be born again as he's in this dialogue with Nicodemus. We're born of flesh, that's our natural birth. We're encountered with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came, that he died, he paid the ransom for our death that we deserve, he paid it in full so that we, when we place our faith and trust in him, become children of God. And so that is our destination moving forward. Our destination will be eternity with him. That is the gospel. So that is Jesus' mission, is that he became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the, the glory of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. And as we continue to read through the gospel, we, we read the, the miracles, the truths, the declarations of Jesus Christ. But when we get to chapter 13, this is a somber time. It's when Jesus is now with his disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. He is preparing them for his death. In fact, in chapter 13, he says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As we continue to read, we read of his comforts. He continues to teach them of the Holy Spirit that will come in his absence. And we get to chapter 15. We're back up to chapter 15, and we find ourselves in the text that we'll be looking at this morning. And I want to read it for you, and you'll have it on the screen. And he says this to these, these disciples, and he says this to us. We know it's meant for us because of how we prayed in John chapter 17. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. I know, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard of my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he may give it you. These things I command you so that you will love one another." We have many acquaintances that are friends, people that we know randomly or maybe on some surface level, uh, and maybe we have a few close friends. But even those close friends, those friendships can be somewhat fickle. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend or that friend has been harmful or mean to you, or maybe you've been your, that way yourself and, and you're, you're maybe beating yourself over that. Why wasn't I not a better friend? And the reality is, Jesus understands, understands this. Judas betrayed him. Peter, John, James, they should have been with him in prayer when he was agonizing in the garden. Peter denied him three times. See, our friendship and our love and devotion towards Jesus Christ can be fickle and it's far from perfect, but we need to know this, that his friendship toward us is perfect. And it is defining 
And that's what we're going to see in this text is how defining this friendship is that we have in Jesus. So the first point is this. Friendship with Christ commands that we love one another. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. To what extent? As I have loved you. To what measure? Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That is the greatest measure. But what he's commanding us to do in verse 12 is to love one another the same way. How is it that Jesus could actually command love? Can you do that? Well, you can if you understand what biblical love is. It is not an emotional feeling. It is an act of the will. It is a proof of whether or not we love someone. It's an act that we demonstrate. So when he took the act of going to the cross and died for our sin, that demonstrated, that proved his love for us. He laid down his life for us. Did he feel like it? He agonized over it. He prayed, God, would you remove this cup from me? But he acted, he demonstrated his love toward us. Rather than throwing a friend under the bus, we push a friend out and take the hit of the bus. That's a demonstration, an act of love, though we may not feel it. When we understand that, we can begin to grasp what it means to love one another. In 1 John, uh, when he writes his first epistle, he uh, explains this in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, when he says this, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The second thing is friendship with Christ involves obedience and knowledge. Verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard of my father, I have made known to you. Our friendship with Christ involves love and obedience, but it also involves knowledge. He lets us in on what he's doing. He lets us in on his plans. We're living in curious times, are we not? There are so many things going on in our globe, so many things going on in your life that I don't know about, but he knows about them, but he is also letting us know what's coming. If you're a friend of Jesus, you know that Jesus Christ is coming back to this planet. If you're a friend of Jesus Christ, you know that we're going to go through difficulties. You know that it's going to fortify our faith. How do you know that? Because he's let you in on that. Abraham was called a friend of God on various occasions throughout Scripture. Why is it that he was called a friend of God? Because he obeyed God. And with that obedience, it increases and it closens that friendship. And there's a very interesting thing that takes place as we look at the uh, life of Abraham. In chapter 18, God is going to show up in Abraham's life. And he's bringing about these promises of, of him being able to be uh, a nation of many. But when he shows up in chapter 18, verse 1, we read this. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of the tent of the heat of the day, don't miss this. He lifted up his eyes and looked. He saw him in front of him. And when he saw them, and so there's God and servants, angels, he ran from the uh, tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if thou hast my favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
And what begins to happen is you see Abraham's proper posture before the Yahweh God, Almighty God. It was a bowing down. It was a reverence. It was a respect. He is master. He is God. I am a lowly person. But what God does at this point is he begins to tell Abraham his plans for what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment was coming. And while he's taking this in, Abraham that is, he's beginning to shudder, realizing that Lot and his family and others are there. And here's what happens. This shift happens of reverence and respect to a closeness and a nearness, a friendship aspect with God. And we look at it in verse 22. So the men turned from there, these two servants, they went down to Sodom so that they could see the true condition of what's going on. Went towards Sodom, but Abraham did this. He stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He enters into this dialogue with God, pleading with God like a close friend. Would you please bestow mercy on these people? And there's this back and forth conversation. And God grants the opportunity for a lot of his family to be delivered before judgment came. And that's much how it is for us. We know judgment's coming. We know that because God has let us in on that. But we are messengers of the gospel. We are messengers of the truth that we could, they, people could become children of God because the gospel is available to everybody who will come to him by faith. And that we're in on that because we're his friend. And also friendship with Christ is initiated by him for his purposes. Verse 16, you do not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That is so clear. I didn't find God. He found me. I didn't choose him. He chose me, and I responded with a yes by faith. That is humbling. That is awesome. And he's reminding his disciples of this. And we can look historically as we read the gospel how he just went from one man to another to another and to another. They went and told their friends and they came and they became followers of him. In John chapter 15 verse 19 we read, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. In other words, followers of Jesus Christ don't feel very comfortable in this world. Because we're not of this world anymore. Jesus is telling them this. We feel this. We know this. Why? Because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We are chosen. But the word appointed refers to the act of letting someone, uh, uh, selecting someone for a very special service. So he not only rescued us, as we, as we sang about just a few moments ago, but he has appointed us. We have work to do. He says, I've rescued you as my children, as my disciples, to do the work of the ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. We have work to do. And we need to stay in his work and not be distracted by the cares of this world that does not love us. And he is challenging his disciples of this, reminding them of this. And he prayed for them this way in John chapter 17. He says, they're going to go out amongst wolves. 
And I'm praying that you would keep them, that you would use them, that you would bring forth fruit. And that's how our Father is glorified. When we give the message of the gospel, people respond in saving faith. He is glorified. We are doing his work. But it also involves prayer. Joseph Scriven spoke of this in his hymn, in his poem. So that whatever you ask, this is verse 16, so whatever you ask in my Father's name, that is, according to his will, he may give it you. Once again, Jesus brings up this privilege of prayer. And it, you go before a king, you go for a que- before a queen and the monarchies, it's such an honor and a privilege. But we as the children of God, we have access to the throne of grace at any time. At any time. Where you're seated right now, you could be uttering prayers and talking to him, and he hears you. Because he's your friend. He did not choose to see us as servants. But he chooses to see us as friends. And then lastly, this is a double up. He repeats himself. The last point is the same as the first. Friendship with Christ commands that we love each other. We read it in verse 12. Jesus Christ reemphasizes it. He says it in verse 17. These things I command you that you will love one another. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 25:14 said, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Friendship is such a beautiful thing, but it's such a delicate thing. Deep friendships that have deep hurts can go with us throughout a lifetime, right? Um, I want to repeat our central point, and then I want to share with you a different story. The testing of one's faith and love reveals where our loyalty and security lies, especially in the greatest of storms these defining moments. Um, Tammy and I are coming up on, I'm, I'm, we're about, I'm about a year and a half away from 40 years of vocational ministry, 25 of which was in youth ministry. And throughout the course of the years, watching these, these students, the previous students become adults, get married and move on to life, there's so many heartbreaks, but so many exhilarating faith stories that, that we get to hear about and pray these previous students through, one of which was Daniel Waldeck. Daniel was a student in our youth ministry uh, back, way back in the day. I can't even remember the date, you know, the years. But uh, he grew up, got married, had daughters. I heard one day that his dad died suddenly at age 61, my age. So I called Daniel to see how he was doing, and his words came back with, with uh, just such affirmation of God's faithfulness in his life. And, um, and uh, so about a year later, Daniel and his family came cruising through uh, Arizona on a, on a trip to Colorado, back to California. And we got to visit with he and his wife and his three beautiful daughters for, for a few hours. And, and while visiting with them, the girls came in from outdoors and, and uh, they said, hey, hey, mom, Logan's got more bruises. And uh, then... Daniel and Cindy looked at each other and said, yeah, we need to have that checked out. And so they went on home, and and I'm going to let them tell the rest of the story before we close our service this morning. So check out uh, God at Work in Daniel and Cindy's life.
I just remember seeing her going across the salad bar. I'm like, is, boy, is that, is that girl a freshman? We got married March 14th, 1998 in Simi Valley, where I grew up. And the wedding was great. We had tons of friends and family. I remember thinking, this is so great to have all the people you love in one place at one time. And for our honeymoon, we went up the coast of California, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, Santa Cruz. It's all S. Solving. Solving, yes. Um, and then ended at his parents' house in San Jose, actually. <laughs> and then came back home. Logan started to show some bruising, and most kids get bruises, but hers was a little bit abnormal in the sense of how many she had. And it wasn't always on the bone, which, you know, a lot of kids will get bruises like along their shins or forearms or whatnot from falling. But hers were kind of everywhere. And when she bruised, she really bruised. And so it was, it was concerning, but, you know, it wasn't. We didn't think it would be anything serious. And the doctor looked at her originally and said, oh, she's bruising like any other child. I think it's fine. And I said, well, I'd like you to do a blood test just to double check. I remember calling him saying, oh, we can come back and do it in a couple days. He said, no, get it done today. Um, so it was either that afternoon or the next morning, the doctor called and said, yeah, something's not right. And um, she needs to get in to see the doctor today. So, um, at that moment, I knew um, we were starting on a long journey. For the first year, basically, we were meeting with the doctors. She was having checkups. She had a couple transfusions, maybe. She would have a couple transfusions to help with uh, her platelet levels to maintain a safe level. Um, you red know, cells. And red cells, yeah. So normal platelet levels are somewhere between 150,000 and 300,000. And hers would float between 5,000 and 15,000. We had been going down to Woodland Hills to a pediatric uh, oncologist there who works in blood disorders. And she wanted us to meet with, a, with a, one of the head docs at City of Hope. And he goes, well, um, there's a 90% mortality rate to aplastic anemia patients. We're like, oh, okay. Just not really computing that 90% mortality meant 90% chance that she would not make it. And uh, him just saying, you know, I tell people this, you know, you can do chemotherapy and things like that for leukemia, but the only potential cure is, is a bone marrow transplant. I said, honey, we have to do school. No excuses. No, mom, really, I do have a headache. And I said, okay, well, you're not going to go play. You're going to lay down on the couch and take a nap then if, if you have a headache, if you can't do your schoolwork. So I said, I looked at him, I said, something, something's wrong. And I called the doctor again. And um, 
think I had said to her, I'm just calling for peace of mind that my daughter's brain isn't bleeding. She said, I have no reason to believe that she was just transfused. And so the science made sense. She had just been transfused. She should be fine. They basically just, they come up and they say, we've, we've got to try something that we've never done here. We've got to got to try to remove the pressure in her brain she's bleeding from her brain and we got to we got to try to get platelets in her and we're gonna have to do a craniotomy we don't know what the effects is we don't know if she'll make it out of surgery we've never done it on a child this small my mind went back two years to when my dad died and the note he had left unknowingly of Isaiah 55, 8, 9. And his words, God's a blessed control of all things. And his thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. And I remember at that moment, two years previous, that we had learned that you have to choose to think the right way as you're you're walking into a valley that you don't want to walk through. I remember waking up to a knock on the door at 5.30 in the morning, I was the nurse. And uh, I'm saying, Logan's not doing so well. The doctor, you know, is like, can I talk with you for a second? And um, I'm like, yeah. So we walk out in the hall and remember it's like like it's yesterday she says mr walbeckham i'm sorry to tell you that there's nothing i can do your daughter's going to die today i remember five o'clock rolled around and the test had been completed and they said anytime you're ready you let us know and they were just so gracious the hospital staff and us sitting there and probably 525 rolled around and I remember as they took her off the life support and it was just her and her breath and us holding her and listening to her heartbeat slow and the moment of 535 rolling around she took her last breath she went from my arms to his I remember Dr. MacArthur and his wife came. And uh, I remember not because of them coming, I remember more because of what, what he told us. I remember him asking us a question and saying, you know what the goal of every parent is? And obviously <laughs> we were kind of like, I don't know, I don't know. You don't want to answer like one of the greatest theologians with the wrong answer you're like so i answered the political answer well no, why don't you tell me what it is and he smiled he said it's to lead your kids to the feet of jesus he goes you've done that i mean time after time i would say you know this is really hard lord 
I don't understand why this is happening to us. But pretty quickly, my thoughts would think too. But it's not about me. It's what God was doing in establishing his kingdom. We look back in remembering you know, that time, that week, and the weeks after, thinking we are hanging on by a thread, just a thread. But literally feeling like you were being carried by God's grace. Life circumstances come up and you're just frustrated and overwhelmed and run down. And you feel like you can't go on. And the only thing you can do is look up. And so you look up and you realize that you're just sitting right in the palm of his hand. And you're right in the center again of where he wants you to be. And you're not one step further, one step behind of exactly where he wants you. And that's a really secure place to be. It's not easy, but it's sure is secure. We're going to sing uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus in just a moment, but what we just witnessed was a testimony of a watershed moment or a watershed experience where faith and trust is in Jesus Christ for, for salvation and for all of life. And I, you know, watershed moments happen all the time. It could be you've been sitting in this room right here and you said, okay, Jesus, you've been calling me and I'm yours. And by doing that, you'll be able to firsthand or very, in a very personal way be able to sing what a friend we have in Jesus. And those who, us, of us who have lived a life where Jesus has been our friends, we can declare it with all of our hearts as we sing together. So why don't you stand with us this morning and sing what a friend we have in Jesus. Good. 
precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise for through any situation that may come, that we can trust in your faithfulness. Thank you for not calling me slave, but calling me friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We thank you for joining us today. Go and enjoy community out at Food Truck Sunday. If you're a guest, please go to our guest service counter. We have a guest gift just for you. God bless you. Take care.